Welcome to On Call Thoughts, where medical students talk about mental health, work-life balance, medical specialties, and much, much more. This week's episode will focus on exploring the field of hematology, as well as speaking on resiliency in medicine and medical education. Our guide for this journey is another very special guest from the Ottawa medical community who happens to also be a hematologist. In today's episode, Yuchen and I will be interviewing Dr. Karima Kamisa. Dr. Kamisa obtained her MD degree at the University of Western Ontario. She then completed postgraduate medical training in internal medicine at Queen's University, followed by hematology training at the University of Ottawa. She works as a community hematologist and a consultant hematologist at the Ottawa Hospital. Her busy clinical practice focuses on disorders of iron metabolism, platelet disorders, and other benign hematological conditions. She has a keen interest in medical teaching, particularly at the undergraduate level, and we've been lucky to have her as one of our professors during our first year of medical school. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Kamisa, again for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us today and um, for supporting this initiative. So hi, Dr. Kamisa. So not a problem at all. And um, thank you for thinking of me. I'm, I'm actually really honored and touched. Thank you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, so I think we're going to just jump right into the interview. Um, we're First, going to start with just some icebreakers just to warm ourselves up and everything. Yeah, okay. Awesome. So, thank you for the introduction. Um, so, uh, Dr. Kamisa, these will be sort of a lightning round, rapid fire, so one, answer, one word answers. Um, so, we'll begin. Uh, so, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. And are you a cat type of person or dogs? Dog. Okay, and do you have a dog at home? I don't, but they frequently um, use our lawn as the washroom, but even then I'm still a dog person. <laughs> and um, do you prefer Ottawa in the summer months or in the winter? In the summer, um, I hide out in the winter and hide out less in the <laughs> summer. And uh, as a healthcare professional, do you prefer sort of the community clinic or working on the hospital wards? For my own mental sanity and well-being, I prefer the community. Yeah, okay. The hospital is depression, so I actually like the peace and quiet of my orderly and well-organized clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, do you prefer day shifts or night shifts as a, as a doctor? <laughs> Definitely day shifts. Okay. And lastly, uh, do you I don't know um, if you wear scrubs much in the hospital, but do you prefer scrubs or more formal attire? Uh, yeah, the equivalent of scrubs in my clinic, yoga pants. Okay. And so nobody <laughs> has complained in 10 years. That's so nice. I'm going to keep sticking with them. <laughs> Definitely not formal okay. there. <laughs> uh, so that wraps it up for our for a lightning round. And uh, I just wanted to know if you had a favorite 
hematology joke or, or joke poking at another medical specialty or something like that? <laughs> no, that would speak to the hidden agenda. <laughs> I'm not going to rag on any other specialty. Clearly, hematology is the best, but I will not put down other specialties <laughs> at this point. Even though I have a few uh, in my Rolodex of jokes in my head, I, I, I'll i probably just keep them to myself. If that's, <laughs> that's all right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Great. So um, thanks for answering those questions. So now we're just going to switch gears a little bit. So could you describe for us what your journey through medicine has been like? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's an interesting question because every time um, I feel a bit frazzled, frustrated, or tired, I still go to my old filing cabinet, dig out my acceptance letter because 20 years ago, over 20 years ago when I got accepted to medical school, we didn't have that online click that tells you you got in. It was a package, it was a letter and a thick package. So you knew something good was happening when you got the thick package. Uh, so um, I read that and uh, it was quite a quite a, a reflective journey to come to de the decision to even apply to be a physician. I thought I'd wanted to be a teacher, probably elementary uh, school or even kindergarten, mm. even even more junior than that. And um, somewhere along the way, I mean, the sciences were always my forte. And it just, it, it, I don't know what changed. I applied to do a master's. I started a master's. I didn't like it. Went back to undergrad to upgrade my marks just to get into medical school. I put a lot of, of thought into it. And at the end of the day, there was just something really gripping about being in the field of medicine. I, I wrote my MCATs. And uh, didn't have too much time to study for them, unfortunately, but uh, did 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 okay. And um, ended up really wanting to do medicine as just something I couldn't I couldn't leave, couldn't get out of my head. And uh, there wasn't a particular one crystallizing moment. It was just something, and you had to do. So when I applied and got in, uh, I was just I felt so blessed, and I I still feel blessed um, when I look around at the range of of options of careers um this has certainly been one of the most fulfilling one of um the areas a career that has given me so much scope so much flexibility that so many wonderful people so I, i'm actually just really glad that um whatever little passion i had in me uh, stuck and i think going into medicine without a real clear idea of exactly what that entailed, what's clerkship, what's residency. I was a blank slate. Simply came into the field knowing, you know, I liked it. I, I enjoyed sciences. I enjoyed talking with people. And I think that was a bit, um, uh, it was nice to have a bit of that blank slate. I, I find it a little bit different nowadays in that I do teach in first year medical school like first year medical students quite a bit really early on in the uh, earlier blocks in our curriculum. Mm -hmm. And already I'm having medical students ask me about the match, the residency match program. That's such a difference than when um, me and my peers were going through. We sort of had the vague idea. And of course, we had those so-called keeners in our class that were gunning for surgery from day <laughs> one or gunning for a certain thing. But really that that the extent of that is now 
and um, has just um, broadened quite a bit so that I find uh, there's less of that ambiguity and less ambivalence and more of a definitive, um, I, I really want to do dermatology or I want to optho and, and right from, from sort of month one, month two. So my journey then evolved into exploring a lot of different things in keeping an open mind. I thought I wanted to emerge, really liked the internal medicine uh, rotations. And when I push came to shove, I really uh, gravitated towards internal medicine because every cool case I saw on the eMERGE, what was that case of ascites, which is fluid in the, the abdomen, or that case of, you know, that rash, or um, that really interesting presentation where somebody's sodium was very, very low, and what had, you know, what became of that? In the eMERGE uh, setting, I kept wondering about those kinds of cases happen and so I thought you know I really want to 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 have a, a field that I'm working in that lets me have some longitudinal follow-up to kind of have a story see how it evolves and then finish it and, and follow it through and um and when I, I eventually did match to internal medicine um I didn't have a, an, an immense research again uh, research wasn't a big part of my story it has evolved a little bit over time, but um, really it's the questions and it's the stories that really um, uh, piqued my attention. And as I was going through internal medicine, the stories, again, that were most interesting were those from patients with hematologic disorders. And so really it was just a matter of being fascinated, being interested. Um, you know, there is so much in the field that I'm in right now um, in hematology that I still find novel, new. I'm constantly learning. I could pick up our medical journal, our monthly, weekly, rather medical um, journal, still scan for articles and still be interested and still learn something. And I think mm. uh, every person is going to gravitate to something uh, like that. If, if there's something that they like, um, um, then that, that's an indication or they're willing to continue to read around it, even though they're tired, exhausted, um, and have 20 other things on the go. That's always um, a, a good sign. And so within hematology, the story evolves further. Do you pick academic? Do you pick community? Do you mm. pick malignant? Mm -hmm. pick benign, which is not the cancer care side of things. So that, um, uh, that evolved further. And at the end of the day, I had children in residency. And so that solidified my choice to have to evolve a type of practice that that would allow me to to have you know children now I have four children uh, balance my workload and still be fulfilling and what I settled on eventually was as having a, a community hematology practice not malignant because uh, I find those patients are extremely sick I do see them when I'm on call at the hospital and I do uh, a little bit of call. However, um, for the most part, I've been able to to, to keep um, a good balance of, of what goes on at work and what goes on at home. And so I'm, I'm fairly content with my decision in retrospect. And that's a little bit about my story. There's lots of bumps and things along the way, of course. Mm -hmm. um, certainly we can get into that if, if there's further questions. Yeah, that's great. That was um, really inspiring <laughs> to hear that. Um, you know, you've, everything kind of fell in place and you're so passionate about what you do. I also really like how you talked about um, how you sometimes still pull up your acceptance letter. And I think that's such a cool idea because 
like for us too, I think about sometimes the, I think back to when I was like first received that email of being accepted. And I think like we should all try to remember that moment vividly, especially when things get tough in mm-hmm. school and you're kind of like, you're super stressed about an exam or you're going through clerkship and you're like, why am I doing this to myself? It's nice to like think back to that moment and, and remember how excited you were about it. But yeah, that's... Um, it's funny, right? Yeah. My heart still skips a beat when I read it. <laughs> like it's so... You really get that, that, that sense of excitement back. It's my first love. Yeah. More than my kids, more than my husband. It's really <laughs> like, you know, I had medicine before I had kids and a husband. So they, mm-hmm. they in some ways, they, they maybe take second fiddle. <laughs> when I get sick of them, I'm just going to divorce my hubby. You tell my kids to move out and I'll still be able to love the field of medicine. Uh-oh. Hopefully they don't life. find their way onto the podcast <laughs> uh, pretty soon. <laughs> Wow, yeah, yeah it never goes. It's all, always it's such an ingrained part of your identity. Once you become a physician, mm-hmm. it's um, it's uh, really quite. Uh, it can be quite consuming too for some. So yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I think the, mm-hmm. how you mentioned too, you went in with fresh eyes. You kind of just mm-hmm. embraced everything that came your way and found what you ended up loving. So that's really inspiring. I hope similar things happen for us because uh we always feel the pressure to have to decide early on but it's kind of nice to just enjoy every moment i think that is a a system change and a a sort of a cultural medical school cultural shift i really have seen and um it's it's a bit disturbing it takes away from from uh, some of the fun and some of the just the uh, you know passion that you know everyone felt when they first came in, and I I think um, never never really uh, get it comparing you know with each other. Um, just try to focus on what really excites you and what makes you happy, and maybe just stick to that simple tenet, and then evolve your your electives around that and your what you want to evolve in terms of your research projects and things, but don't try not to get too uh, into the, into the game of comparing. I think that that's a bit of a trap. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that uh, advice as well, Dr. Kamisa. Um, I was wondering, I know you touched upon a lot, uh, how you sort of went into internal medicine and then hematology. Um, I was wondering if you could, describe maybe some of the roles and responsibilities you take on as a hematologist and then maybe if there's any differences between your community practice and then when you do have to go on call in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, certainly um, a hematologist is uh, oftentimes the bottom line or the, the end of the line consultant. So as a resident doctor, you're always under the guise of a supervisor but in, um, you know, your own practice or when you're independently licensed, you're it. And very often there's very important things that rest on your decision making process. So surgery, no surgery, you know, blood's appropriate, blood levels are appropriate. They're not appropriate. Um, you know, what is the diagnosis in this very, very sick patient? So Shifting the mindset a, a little bit as a resident to a staff doctor means really taking and having that confidence to, to take that responsibility for the diagnostic, the management process, and knowing that, you know, you've done everything to carefully document your thought process as trained. 
Um, in the community, there isn't anyone, there isn't a lot of oversight. I mean, there is in terms of what people are reading with your notes and, and how you're responding to patients within the clinic, but there aren't many sets of eyes necessarily watching me. Um, I, of course, I'm thorough, careful. I also work for, uh, for our regulatory body, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Mm. Hospital in an academic centre that's quite different. There's always people watching you. There's medical students just sort of watching you, even out of the corner of their eye. There's residents. You have to do a lot more role modeling of professionalism. You have to be a bit, I find, with what you're writing, um, a little bit more careful and a little bit judicious in how you're wording certain things. And uh, I'm seeing a vastly different group of people. They're extremely unwell um, when I am at the hospital on call. Um, and I do about 10 to 16 weeks of call. Um, no, not too many evening calls for my hematology job. <laughs> a few on the weekends. <laughs> so I negotiated that. But it's very, very different um, when, between the two settings. And I certainly find having a pager, even just the ringing of a pager when I'm on call, or if I, it has a certain, it, it drives up my heart rate a little bit and I get a bit anxious still. Even a microwave, the beeping of a microwave, if it sounds a little bit too much <laughs> like a pager. And physicians in practice will tell you this, that certain beeps are a little bit um, triggering. Yeah. For them, and and that's because you just don't know what's happening at the other end in the mm -hmm. community. Uh, you know who's coming in. It's been explained to you. The list is set. Your your six or seven patients, what have you. You know what they're coming in with, and and how to counsel them, and how to approach their issues. Um, so I do find there 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 is quite a, quite a, a a big difference there in terms of roles and responsibilities at an academic center. You're expected to teach. And so uh, what started as a sort of simple expectation really evolved into quite the passion and then a sort of a more formal program of study where I undertook uh, formal teaching and uh, medical education programs. And then I developed a teaching elective for fourth year medical students to help them uh, learn to teach. I wore a number of uh, different hats, um, still do. Uh, I lead one of the OSCEs, uh, the third year medical student OSCE. I developed, set, grade um, uh, that particular OSCE, uh, the head of the, the, the undergrad uh, hematology anglophone uh, block. Mm -hmm. um, and the elected teaching elective, uh, developing third year curriculum um, for the problem assisted learning uh, cases. Um, and, and then in national organizations like the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, I'm an examiner for that. That's the final licensing exam of internists. Uh, before they get licensed. Um, and I work for the Medical Council of Canada, a few regulatory bodies such as the um, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Uh, and I also do administrative work. And some of that naturally just fell out of being in, or evolved out of being in practice for, you know, over 10 years. You get to mm -hmm. fill, you get a, a breadth of clinical experience, you get to evolve into those roles too. And they didn't come um, at any, I didn't find them taxing. I ended up cutting back my clinical practice a little bit just to make room for all those additional roles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but those evolve naturally and they're available to, to most people, most physicians rather, that are practicing for a while. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing and uh, um, and telling us about sort of all the other 
uh, roles and hats that you wear as a physician and uh, as administrator and reg. Um, I was wondering if you could share some of the uh, maybe more rewarding moments as a hematologist or a physician in general, and uh, some of the challenges that you've that you've faced as a physician. Mm -hmm. So I practice in an area of hematology that is a little bit under recognized and undercompensated, and I am medical association to try to remedy some of those issues so certainly the challenge right now in hematology itself is that um, there is a lot of funding for cancer care and cancer patients which is extremely important and understandable but on the flip side there are um, so-called benign hematologic disorders such as iron deficiency or chronic thrombocytopenia due to ITP or an immune condition um, and uh, undifferentiated cases of, of anemia. And a lot of that type of thinking around hematologic disorders, a lot of those diseases are, are, are hard to treat. It's hard to access drugs. For example, intravenous iron um, has become extremely hard to access, even though treating a, a course, a, a woman with low iron, for example, for iron deficiency with intravenous iron is only $400, a fraction of a cost of chemo drugs, which are $20,000. We have to jump through a lot of hoops as non-malignant hematologists to try to get that woman access. And I'm saying woman because practice overwhelmingly, it's women of efficiency. Yeah. So it's very, very frustrating that the sort of hematology um, is, is underrepresented. It's actually undercompensated. And our patients are not given access to the same things, even though their symptoms may be very, very significant. And But the flip side of that, and especially I, I have uh, 260 people, women mainly with iron deficiency anemia, a few men. But the flip side of that is when you actually do help treat for that, that condition, they feel so much better. They're constant, everything from concentration to hair growing back to restless legs to um, re-enrolling in school to re-resuming work. That is so rewarding. And I have a lot of very, very happy patients um, that are extremely grateful for um, that opportunity to get better after having failed and, and not, you know, feeling good themselves um, for for a while they do feel much much better and I'm even listed on the bariatric Facebook group but people who go through bariatric surgery for weight loss can't absorb iron as efficiently anymore yeah. so my name is registered there as you know the iron lady <laughs> in Ottawa the person to go to so that makes yes. me very very happy mm -hmm. that you know even though it's not a, a glossy award and it's not a big gold medal or a $50,000, you know, research grant, there is some recognition that there is an impact on people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very, very rewarding. And it's hard to find that necessarily in internal medicine, where there's a lot of complex, highly comorbid people, and it's hard to fix things. This is one fix I, I find I can do very well. And um, uh, there's a, a, a very nice um, uh, balance, I think, with um, the particular type of practice and then also having um, a lot of really challenging cases that are diagnostic dilemmas 
at the hospital. And so that that's another rewarding part where, um, you know, I don't when I'm I'm not seeing bread and butter iron deficiency. I'm seeing the rarest of rare cases in presentations that are highly unusual and working through the diagnosis, helping people get to a diagnosis. That part's also very, very rewarding as well. So there's lots of things in, in hematology, lots of challenges in the type of hematology that I practice. Mm. Um, but uh, I have a few ideas on how to globally address mm -hmm. some of those systemic issues, but um, that requires a whole bunch more energy and coffee. <laughs> um, and um, maybe, if, you know, over time, I'll, I'll get to some yeah, of those ideas. Hopefully. That's awesome. Uh, it was, yeah, nice to hear your perspective on the the rewarding things, but also the challenges. Really interesting. I never considered these um, things such as funding, compensation. Help. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, that's the, the bane of many mm. physicians' uh, existence, especially in some fields like rheumatology, gastroenterology, hematology, where our patients could use very expensive yeah. drugs, but it's so frustrating when you can't access the drugs that you want because of logistical barriers, paperwork barriers, funding barriers. And uh, I, I find that that can be very, very frustrating for sure. Yeah, hopefully things will get better, like you said, and uh, people will create um, ways to solve these problems. Yeah. yeah. That's your generation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, uh, Dr. Kamisa, if you don't mind uh, switching gears a little bit, um, we wanted to ask you a little bit about, as you know, you know, medical school and the medical profession, there's a lot of resilience that's required um, because of the rigorous um, demands of the profession. So we just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you cope, um, how you handle stress, ways that you stayed resilient all these years and also, you mentioned that you are a mother of four children. So um, mm -hmm. just kind of mm -hmm. the challenges with that. Yeah. And, uh, how you how you kind of balance it all. Yeah, I actually think it started in residency when I realized because I had children. I had two kids in residency mm -hmm. um, in my third year of uh, residency. Um, I was married and then by fourth year. I, um, I had my first child and then in fifth year I had another child and I realized early on in residency that you ha I had to be okay with not doing everything I wanted to do at the time that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I think that's to know your limit. So there were lots of things that probably I could have admitted um research projects i uh making a priority list and saying what's important if i don't take care of my children or put food on the table or feed them uh, you know will i be happy finishing a research proposal like no right so what are your priorities <laughs> so you start from there and you say and, and your everyone's priorities are going to be different. If somebody's priorities are to do Zumba every day at 6 p.m., they should be, you know, not consider certain, let's say, projects. I'm not even going to say certain specialties because specialties can evolve into a practice 
the way you want to make a practice, even within, I mean, I'm going to use arbitrarily surgical examples, but you know, you could mold things the way you like them when you're a staff person. In residency, I realized I'm going to have to put the brakes on and, and practice in a certain way. So when I got a job offer at University of Ottawa, they asked me to be on the call schedule. I knew that having young kids, um, you know, I wanted to see them at night. So um, they offered to me that I didn't have to be on the call schedule after five, after 5 p.m. And and I said, for sure. And they've kept that going for 11 years. So I'm not going back. I'm the only one that's sort of been grandfathered in. So I ended up having two more kids after that. So digging in really in the sand um, kind of really uh, early on as to what I would do, what I wouldn't do, what's useful. And then mm -hmm. as my kids grew older, mm -hmm. as you know, you're less frazzled as a mother, as a new mother, I was in survival mode. I wasn't even trying to be, you know, uh, the stellar chief resident. I ended up being chief, <laughs> chief resident because nobody wanted to do it. But I, I wasn't really gunning for those high profile, you know, positions. Um, it was something that I just needed to survive as a mother. I needed to figure out how to breastfeed, which was awful. Like I needed to figure out, you know, how, how, you know, growth curves and mm -hmm. making sure that, that my kids got to the dentist on time. Uh, it was, you know, enrolling them in school, making sure they did their homework over time. Now, as kids get older, they're less reliant on you and you can do a little bit more. So because I love teaching, I was able to actually expand on that. And I had the good sense okay. to hire a nanny um, who was then very, very helpful in terms of, of helping us. She stayed with us six years. Um, and as child number three and four evolved or grew up, I, I could actually do even more and more and more. So hence, number of titles do accumulate later on. But I think part of people, people think, you know, um, oh, you know, I need a course on mm -hmm. resiliency. I need to be at yoga at six and that's going to help me. And that may certainly help. But I think really looking at what's going to be taking you away from the things you love, looking at how many hours that is in the day and estimating what you can give to, you know, your job and estimating what you need to give back right. to yourself uh, and be that yourself, your family, what have you. And then really being clear, never taking on too mm -hmm. much initially, especially as a trainee, people mm -hmm. take on too many things I find. And then at the end, they, they're juggling so many things in the air that they, they don't even know if they're coming and going. And Dr. Wells, our division head, he's, he's mm -hmm. excellent. He's the developer of the Wells criteria, very prolific researcher. He always said, you know, when you can't focus on being an excellent researcher and an excellent, you know, teacher and an excellent clinician, the one thing you need to focus on is being an excellent clinician, because that's what you know, you, that is your face, that is your public right. face, that is your professional face. Work as hard as you can to be an excellent clinician. And if the other, if you have that resilient type of situation, perhaps you've got a very supportive partner, you, you don't have a lot of debt perhaps coming into medical school, you don't necessarily need to pick up extra shifts here and there. If you've got the extra reserve, then you can, you know, develop those other 
core things. Um, some people naturally are good teachers and simply evolve that over time um, and, and ha are intuitive about it. But um, really prioritizing, you know, learning your art, learning your science of medicine, learning your field, whatever it may be, and then everything else will come after. And I tell that to first year students, I tell that to residents, um, because uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, many people practice in the community where there is no real obligation to publish, but the obligation is always there for good patient care. That's never going to go away. And our regulatory bodies are always watching sort of over us and reviewing mm -hmm. our, our clinical habits. Uh, um, so um, I think that's, that's one thing that people should, should really take away is above all, be a good clinician and physician. Mm -hmm. So thank you for the advice and uh, from Dr. Wells and from you. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, uh, it's very true and very, um, very important to always keep that in mind uh, as a medical student as we uh, go down the line into our clinical duties. Mm -hmm. um, so switching gears again, Dr. Kamisa, um, I know you said that uh, if you hadn't gone into medicine, maybe one of the things that you were interested in was perhaps a teacher or a junior kindergarten teacher. Um, We've, we've been very fortunate and uh, lucky as one of our mentors and professors during um, the hematology block in undergraduate medical education. Um, I was just wondering if you could uh, expand a little bit on how you got involved in teaching um, in Ottawa and some of the responsibilities you take on as an educator in medicine. Absolutely. So working part time at the academic centers, I work at the civic hospital on call there. I was uh, and I was actually doing quite a few shifts. So I was always around medical students, residents, and we were obligated to teach um, the case based learning, the CBLs. Um, and uh, I got nominated as one of the top five percent of teachers in the CBLs of that unit, unit one, it was called. And, and that was um, in my second year of um, being, uh, being on staff, so 2011. And that was just an amazing honor um, to, be, to be even thought of as, as a good teacher. It wasn't anything I really prepared for. I was still quite busy with my two young children and my community practice was just starting. And the, the nomination came with the option, and I had to think thought long and hard about it, to dedicate two additional years to teaching via a program called the Distinguished Teacher Program. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that, you had to do 100 to 120 hours of undergrad teaching. I was doing five or six hours um uh, that the whole year wow, okay. this was quite a quite an opportunity and it was funded it was forty thousand dollars um so there wasn't uh, the expectation that i always had to be in clinic and be on call i had a little bit of income to help over those two years of the program and i decided you know i had to think long and hard about it and at the end of the day i decided you know what it's an honor to be nominated if i don't do it I'll always regret it. And with that particular um, uh, teaching program, that was a very good introduction to, you know, medical education and medical school teaching, things that I never even thought about and techniques I never thought about, uh, meeting like-minded people. Um, there is a number of uh, 
first year teachers that that you're familiar with they they have graduated from the program uh and uh so that was one reasons i do um, as much medical education as i do i probably a few cbls here and there but wouldn't have been as involved and then once you get one role it snowballs into others and once you're demonstrating that you're interested in medical education nobody really wants to do it you would think there'd be a lineup there actually isn't Interesting. <laughs> so um you know you get roped into uh different things you're you're your content expert uh etc so uh i think there's there's that particular uh, trajectory and then medical education research sort of evolved from there not as much as others uh, not as much as clinical educators but certainly I've had some some interesting uh, small we've published on and uh, been very happy to to learn a little bit more about publishing um, it came to that later in the game but um, Teaching is really my passion. And even now in my community clinic, I have a fourth year general internal medicine resident rotating with me. Um, and uh, I have options in my clinic or not. Uh, and I always try to accommodate and have, have them in my clinic. Um, I find it very rewarding. It gives you um, a bit of energy. It's, it's hard to describe. You feel a little bit more energetic after you teach, even though technically it should be draining. Um, but always having, you know, to teach and, and share your art with, your your knowledge with, I think that's wonderful. Um, hoping to, you know, have a whole new generation of, of clinicians understand, you know, things that I'm passionate about, like iron deficiency anemia and how to treat that in women. I'm now teaching family doctors. I've organized an education day in the city coming up in three weeks to help teach family doctors about some of these, these issues. Uh, so um, I think, you know, there's a natural evolution, um, but I was happy to be, I think, starting with that uh, distinguished teacher program. That was a nice program that University of Ottawa had for, for certain people. So that was really the trigger. Oh, that's wonderful. It sounds like uh, teaching has been like a really fulfilling aspect of your career. Um, and uh, yes, I would say so for sure. Mm -hmm. um, if I and I think back to when I was uh, in just doing my clinic, um, which is great. You're helping patients. They're they're very lovely and mm -hmm. very happy that um, their their hematology is usually taken care of. Uh, but the, teaching is almost more selfish in some ways because it gives back to me mm. <laughs> in some ways, even though a side effect might be, oh, somebody's <laughs> going to learn a little bit about anemia. But I feel um, rewarded with that. Not everyone's going to get that feeling with teaching. Some people feel it's a bit of a drag or it's an onus or it's an exhibition. They have to do it. But then you can, I think you'll be able to see uh, with your certain professors, I'm thinking of an anatomy professor when I say that, who really mm -hmm. is very animated and brings teaching yeah. to life. And and he's all a member of the Distinguished Teacher Program. And you can tell there's people that really get energized with teaching. And then there's people that do it because they were told to show up at 11 a.m. 
and teach the unit directed activity and and they just sort of do it for obligation so if you're the type of person that gets energized by yeah. teaching i think um there's lots of lots of opportunities in medicine to do that lots in fact yeah i think it's a probably a really nice change of pace for you from their clinical roles like you mentioned and we've yeah yes we've obviously had a really good experience with you yeah. as our professor so you can definitely tell you know the person's just shining when they're up there teaching mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah when they're having fun and the students are having that's the best that's the best For combination sure. of, of, of teacher learner um dynamic yeah, yeah exactly For sure. yeah so, uh, Dr. Kamisa, uh, we're just going to wrap this up and uh, we'll ask you just one more question. And it's just uh, we're going to ask you first any advice that you have for us medical students that are going through medicine. Yeah, so it's a you could start anywhere, um, but I reflected a lot over the past um few weeks uh, and months about the idea of competition in medicine and what that really means once you're a medical student, once you're in residency, and what that looks like as a staff. So when you're an attending doctor or a staff person, there is still the sense of competition. We came to medicine because all of us are a little bit competitive. I was more so in high school (laughs) in the top three students in high school and we all come by this competition thing Mm -hmm. naturally Um, as now as a staff 20 years out I can tell you the competition looks different I don't care about plastics or I don't care about (laughs) anything to do with a match what we're what I find I'm trapped in and I want to get away from so I'm trying to develop ways to get out of the mindset is competition about things like money houses Mm -hmm. assets what my four kids are doing am i going to have a stellar child who's at the top of the class or what i'm st- what i'm struggling with now and i've got very children who the teacher has, has scolded me a few times about my children's behavior Aww. which i was the model student and i am caught in a little bit of a trap where i'm comparing myself and my lifestyle and what I do and how much I exercise with others. And I can only imagine in for in medical school that that may be similar, but it, uh, you know, so many, I've done so many electives. I've done, I got a 90 on my quiz and he got a 60 um, or, you know, I got a paper published. I've got five papers published. It just, I almost think that there's, there's a need to recenter ourselves and I'm still, struggling with this as we are all going to struggle with this how do we remove the idea of being competitive with others but just wanting to be the best for ourselves so i have no advice or answers it's just something i'm hoping everyone thinks about and if they think they've matched to their perfect field and they've got you know the you know you you could have everything drawn up your know across the board there's still always areas I feel we need to be less competitive with less competitive with other parents less competitive with our vacations our insta photos our what we're doing we almost just feel we need to gravitate towards and internally look at what are we doing to make ourselves happy 
Are we comfortable in our skin? Are we comfortable in our life? What do we feel is lacking? Um, and so, you know, I think that that's just an area to reflect on with all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes really well with some of the other things you talked about, like sort of um, the blank slate that you had going into medicine and then never uh, sort of uh, um, trying to juggle too many things as a medical student. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think Dr. Wells uh, said, uh, you know, if everything is, if things are really difficult in the moment, that it's still, it's very important to um, sort of keep, uh, keep, the clinical duties as uh, in, in the forefront and uh, make sure that is because that's our um, at the end of the day, that's our, that's our uh, public face, as you said, and, um, and we're, or we're required to do well. And um, so I think that's all very, uh, very good advice and very inspiring to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think if that's the most that we can be, we, we ourselves, put our best foot forward clinically and, and our patients are content and we, we become good doctors and we're not, you know, the marathon ultra marathon runner or, you know, um, everything else. And I think extending that analogy to our personal lives as well mm -hmm. is also, I think something to reflect on and think about um, in our, whatever that means to each person to think about it. Great. So I think that's, uh, that wraps up our interview. We just want to thank you again, Dr. Kamisa, so much for taking the time to talk with us today and sharing your experiences in such a candid and authentic way. We really appreciate this. And um, we definitely look forward to uh, continuing to work with you in the future. And yeah, mm -hmm. we just, we're really grateful for you just speaking with us today. Oh, not a problem. I'm just glad I have young people listening to me because my children don't. I bore them to tears. So I, I'm glad I could talk your ears off and you listen. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. So that's uh, that's it for the episode. Yeah, thank right. you. Thank Take you. Take care, guys. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Kamisa. In today's episode, we were humbled to talk with Dr. Kamisa. Dr. Kamisa provided us with many insights on interesting topics such as her journey through medicine, the specialty of hematology, interesting moments at work, resilience in medicine, medical education, as well as her advice to us as medical trainees. I think it's fair to say that Dr. Kamisa left us with a lot to think about, and we are so very grateful that we had the opportunity to talk with her today. Well, that's it for today's show. Let us know your thoughts and comments on this week's episode by going on our social media. You can always find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast retrieval service of your choice. Make sure to subscribe so you're kept updated with new content. Lastly, although we are real medical students, this podcast is meant purely for entertainment purposes and should not be interpreted as medical advice. Nor do the views and opinions expressed on this show represent those of our faculty and university. If you do have medical concerns, please see your physician. Thank you and see you next time.